University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkway. Visit ubc-br.org or at UBCBR on Facebook for more information. Now, I've been wondering over the last couple of weeks, as we begin each of our conversations with me talking about some sort of filled food, I'm, I'm sure some in this room have been annoyed. Others, you're just hungry at the thought of some of the delicious things we've been talking about. And still others have been edified. Your, your worldview of food has been broadened by this. So I thought we would get back to something very basic this morning, a hamburger. Or as Steve Martin said in the Pink Panther, hamburger. This American staple is neither ham nor American, for it was all made of beef and it's from Germany. It's, it's painful me, for me to sit with someone and to hear them order a plain hamburger when there are so many other wonderful options out there. Take, for example, one of my favorite hamburgers has this hidden goodness within it. It's called the Juicy Lucy. Now that sounds really wet because I'm not going to use the word moist because that word is disgusting. But the Juicy Lucy takes the standard hamburger and turns it into something much more profound by filling itself with the goodness of cheese. That's right, a hamburger filled with cheese on top of cheese, it sounds like a perfect way for your colon and other aspects of your body to face trouble the next day. But a, a, a goodness filled within two buns. We've been talking about through this series how we have the opportunity not to be filled with the plain and the mundane, but instead we are challenged to be filled with the goodness that is of Christ. And we've been taking a look at Paul's letter to the Colossians in which he challenges them to fill their lives with, with kindness and goodness and grace and forbearance and joy and love and unity. And each week, we've been looking at how our lives are like a bucket. And we have the opportunity to either fill up or empty our buckets, to either fill up or empty the buckets of others. We've given you these little buckets to carry around as a daily reminder of this challenge. And with this, we turn to this theme text in Colossians chapter 3 in which Paul writes, therefore as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another of any grievances against someone. Forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. And over all these virtues put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body, you are called to peace. Anybody remember back in 1969, the Plastic Ono Band released John Lennon and Paul McCartney's collaborative work, Give Peace a Chance. The song is the very bedrock of the anti-war movement in America at the time. One of the more unique facets of the song is that it was recorded when Yoko and John were on their in-bed honeymoon. And joining John and Yoko were dozens of reporters and celebrities in which they invited them to sing this song together. And that is the recording we have of this song as it belts out. All we are saying is give peace a chance. 
The song joins the era of songs like Cat Stevens' Peace Train, The Birds' Turn, 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 and Bob Dylan's Blowing in the Wind. For many, when we hear this word peace, we think of the opposite of war. But is that what Paul is talking about here? This particular understanding of peace is not quite in the same understanding of goodness and compassion and joy that Paul writes in these verses. The Greek word that he uses here is even more complex. It is the Greek word irene, which has three or four connotations to it. It either means state of tranquility, harmony between individuals, security and prosperity, or a blessed state of devotion. Well, that makes it about as clear as mud as to what he is talking about in this moment. Paul compounds these complexities by calling them to let the peace of Christ rule their hearts. So something we can experience individually and collectively, it's spiritual, it's emotional, it's mental, it's physical, and it's something that will rule our hearts. What exactly is Paul getting at here? The Hebrew people had a word for this. It was shalom. It is about as clear as Irene because shalom means so many different things. It's in the Old Testament, it refers to a, a single brick that has no deformities or flaws. It's whole. At other times, shalom refers to an entire wall that is complete. At other times, shalom refers to a person's well-being. Shalom is, is a complex term which, which recognizes the interconnected parts of people and relationships and systems and structures in the world. Probably one of the most challenging expressions of the complexity of shalom is found in the Old Testament book of Job. Now the book of Job begins uh, to the point. In the land of Uz, there was a man who lived there named Job. This man was blameless and upright. He, he feared God and shunned evil. So if you're looking for the ultimate introduction of a biblical character, Job just got it. I can't think of another figure in the entire Old Testament that has been elevated to such a description. He is blameless, which means there is nothing about Job that you can find fault in the eyes of God. He is, he's not self-righteous, but he's simply good and right in the eyes of God. He's upright, meaning he's right and proper. He's fitting. He's correct. There are only other terms used to characterize someone else in the Bible in these terms is God in the book of Psalms. You see, the author tags another description. He feared God and shunned evil. Just in case we didn't think that Job was awesome, the author wants us to make sure that we know that he fears and respects and honors God. We start to see that the writer of Job might have had a man crush on Job, if we're honest in this moment. The storyteller goes on to tell us that he had seven sons and three daughters, a large family which was a sign of blessing and prosperity. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, which is actually 1,000 ox, 500 donkeys, and a large number of servants. I've always loved how they have to give the exact number of all the animals, but then they're like, and then just some servants over here. You see, the number of ox and donkey are, are, are trying to say that Job was a man of wealth. He was a man of importance. He ran an entire tremendous enterprise of farming. And Job 1.3 tells us he was the greatest man among all the people in the East. Okay, I think the writer had a man crush on Job. But things are about to turn terribly wrong for Job. In a matter of 10 verses, Job goes from prosperity 
to absolute catastrophe. While he's plowing and grazing, all of Job's oxen and donkey were stolen by another tribe. The servants that were working and watching the animals were all murdered. And in an instant, he has lost most of his working force. And while he's receiving this news, another messenger comes up to Job and tells him that fire came from the sky and consumed his sheep and the shepherds. All of them are gone, charred to a crisp. What is happening? And while he's receiving this news, yet another servant comes and tells them that his entire family, his children, were feasting and a great desert wind swept and struck the home. They're all dead, the servant cried. All of them. The narrator says that immediately Job tore his clothes. He shaved his head as a sign of mourning. He fell to the ground and worshiped God, saying, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord takes away. May the name of the Lord be praised. What? But then it picks up here in Job chapter 2, verse 7. It says, So the adversary went from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, Are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, You are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. As if all this wasn't enough, Job begins to experience uh, physical suffering as he contracts some sort of debilitating disease or ailment. And the only way for him to relieve the pain of the sores was to sit on the ground and to scrape his skin with the pottery, mind you, from the shards of his home being destroyed. Job and his wife have just experienced the worst possible tragedy. And it's all going to not draw them together, but pull them apart. Job and his wife seem to be in a complicated relationship. They're simply and profoundly on two totally different pages as to what they are experiencing in this moment. And Job's wife never has received the best rap when it comes to biblical readers. St. Augustine labeled her the devil's accomplice. And John Calvin called her a diabolical fury just going to go ahead and give you a heads up. Don't call your spouse any of those names. <laughs> and we must not necessarily see this woman as a villain, but struck with grief. As one author put it, she watched her children die. Ten times God blessed her wound. Ten times she enjoyed the joy and pain of childbirth. Ten lives nurtured, loved, honored, and respect God. It is unlikely that he could esteem such a man in society if his wife was not an integral influence leader as, as in her own right. Imagine the grief that overwhelmed her soul as she looked down in disbelief at ten freshly dug graves. I don't know about you, but I'm not exactly sure how I would handle losing my, my wealth and my prosperity and my way of life and all of my children in one day. Now on top of that, your spouse is facing some sort of terrible disease and condition. She is a woman in despair. And in her despair, she utters an honest confession to her husband, are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. Let me translate that for you. This is terrible, Job. Everything we have and ever loved is gone. You are suffering. We are in agony. Clearly God has brought this upon us. 
but you have done nothing. So let go. Let go of loving this God. Let go of life. And let's let go of this painful experience and no longer cease to exist. Can you connect with Job and Job's wife? We all experience suffering in our lives in a varying degrees. Within this space, our, our current and past stories of, of disappointment and loss and discouragement, tragedy and setback and frustration, the inexplicable gambit of suffering comes from broken friendships and unexpected death, medical diagnosis, injustice, job loss, inner emotional turmoil and loneliness, the hidden tide of depression, and so much more. A study released in 2017 found that more than 8 million American adults suffer from serious psychological distress, whether it be stress or anxiety or depression. Suffering is accompanied by feelings of hurt and disappointment and grief and anxiety and hollowness and fear and despair. Human suffering is universal, no matter the context or the time in history. So yes, we all can connect with Job and his wife in some sort of degree. And yet, for many in this space, along with some that we love dearly, the the message from this text should not be muddled with the presence of perplexing form of suffering that is not simply accomplished in the time we have this morning. Believing and following Jesus does not fix the very real challenge that people face of mental health. Just pray and fix it is not a message from the Bible. In the gospel, Jesus encounters people facing the deep and often unnoticed pain of mental health struggles. And Jesus encountered these people with compassion and desire to bring healing into their lives. So too, this, we must see this very real suffering that requires professional guidance. While prayer is an integral part of our lives, God also has equipped and empowered other people to care for those who are facing suffering by helping them navigate it with conversations and medication and professional care. So like Jesus, the church must broaden its understanding and ability to care for and removal of the stigma that is mental health. Now, when I was traveling a lot for CBF, I would often get to the airport super-duper early, like 4 a.m. for a 5 a.m. flight. And I remember one particular instance when I got through security, I immediately head to Starbucks because I needed the nectar that would supply my life with everything that I needed. And I got there, and I ordered my normal plain Jane cup of coffee with nothing in it and started sipping on it when I heard this guy in line start to go absolutely ballistic. All I heard him screaming over and over again was, this is tragic. This is tragic. Now, what was tragic was that the hot water spout was broken, and they weren't able to make the drink that he wanted in that particular moment. Tragic? Really? Tragic is dozens of children that died in Syria this week. Tragic is children that die of starvation while we are sipping on our $3 to $20 cup of coffee at Starbucks. Tragic is most certainly not an entitled middle-class American not getting his favorite drink and settling by saying, I kid you not, well, I guess I'll have regular coffee then. You see, there is suffering, and then there is this guy. You see, the book of Job raises some difficult questions about life and faith and how God functions in our life. 
It raises difficult questions about suffering and where God is in our suffering. Job raises difficult questions about peace and how peace fits into our lives as we experience grief and loss and setback and failures. The story of Job carries on into chapter 42 And yet, through the ups and downs, the twists and turns, the gains and the losses, there is this common theme throughout the book of Job. Job remained faithful to God. But in all this, the narrator said, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Again, Job is called blameless, meaning there is nothing about Job that was seen wrong in the eyes of God. And it is not out of his self-righteousness, but Job is simply doing what is right and true and good in the eyes of God. Surely God wouldn't let such a thing happen to such a blameless man, right? Job is living in the lap of luxury one minute, and the next minute he is overwhelmed with catastrophe. And yet in the next 40 chapters of the book of Job, we do not see God abandoning this poor man. Instead, we see God present in the process of the suffering that Job was suffering. In fact, this is how the book of Job concludes in chapter 42, starting with verse 12. The Lord blessed the latter parts of Job's life more than the former. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, and 1,000 yoke of oxen, and thousands of donkeys. And he also had seven sons and three daughters. Nowhere in all the land were found women as beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his children and his children the fourth generation. And so Job died, an old man and full of years. You see, what happened in the story of Job is the complexity of peace of Shalom. Here's a man who had everything and in a matter of hours had nothing. And while Job loses his possessions and his livestock and his comfort and his children, while the relationship he had with his wife and his allies become frayed, Job sees through all this entangled web of chaos. Within this book of Job, we find Shalom. We find peace. Job teaches us that peace is not the mere absence of conflict and violence and complexities and entangled webs and devastating loss. Instead, shalom is finding wholeness within fracturing and completeness within vacancy. And all of this comes out of Job's deeply rooted faith in God. Job understood that God was faithful even when the materialistic and the relational expressions of comfort went away. Job was at peace with following God's lead into finding peace and wholeness within the chaos and conflict. Are you familiar with the term paradox? Uh, Paradox is a self-contradictory statement. Uh, I love how George Bernard Shaw so famously wrote, what a pity that youth must be wasted on the young. Paradox. Okay, here's a new simple example of a paradox. DiGiorno's pizza boasts that they are not delivery, they are DiGiorno, except the fact that the pizza had to be put on a truck and delivered to a store in order for us to go and buy it. So it's not really not delivery, it's DiGiorno. Or take, for example, the stained glass window here. If we were to restore this stained glass piece by piece, would it remain the same stained glass when we are finished? It's a paradox. 
Jesus is a paradoxical prince of peace. The writers of Job, the contemporaries of the prophet Isaiah, it is Isaiah that sees through the corruption of Israel's king, the coming devastation of exile, he writes that a prince of shalom, a prince of peace, will bring a peace that will never end. The prince of peace will make all rights wrong and heal all that has been broken. And Jesus is birthed into the New Testament and announced the arrival of Irene, uh, the announcement of peace on earth. And yet Jesus is a paradox of peace. On one hand, Jesus says, peace I leave you, my peace that I give you. On the other hand, Jesus says, do not think that I have come to bring peace. No, I tell you not peace, but division by the sword. For now there will be five in a family divided against each other, Three against two and two against three. Wait, which is it, Jesus? Peace or division? What Jesus is teaching us that that following him brings about revolutionary transformation and how we look at life and conflict and wholeness and peace. And such a polarizing perspective of peace will naturally bring division among those who don't get it, don't understand it, don't want to believe it possible. You see, the peace of Jesus cannot be experienced unless we completely surrender our faith and control over to him for his leadership. Without faith, the way of Jesus will not bring peace into reality. As the great Frederick Buechner put it, the contradiction is resolved when we realize that for Jesus, peace seems to have meant not the absence of struggle, but the presence of love. And Jesus we see an invitation to find the peace of God. Peace with self, peace with our relationships, with possessions and power and prestige, peace with others and with those who have wronged us, peace with enemies, and peace with the world and God's creation. You see, the invitation of Jesus is an invitation to live into the multi-layer complexities that is peace. It seems like such a paradox, finding peace in suffering. And yet through Jesus, we discover the true peace of God. We find contentment in, in living out the complex and cosmic God that created us, knows us by name, desires for our well-being. Through Jesus, we discover the tranquility of peace with self. We find the acceptance of who we are, where we have been, our uniqueness, and a love for self. Through Jesus, we find a peace for each other in our faith community. We recognize together we find wholeness by sharing ourselves with each other and by embracing each other despite our many differences. Through Jesus, we find peace within our relationships, whether it be family or spouse or friendship or neighbors or coworkers or strangers or enemies. We embrace the reconciliation, the mercy and the grace and the acceptance that can only come through the peace found in Christ. Through Jesus, we find peace with our world and with nature. We participate in the ongoing act of caring for God's world, respecting what God created and not ravaging it for our personal benefit. We find peace on earth. As one author put it, the peace we are offered is not a peace that is free from tragedy, illness or bankruptcy or divorce or depression or heartache. It is a peace rooted in the trust that the life of Jesus gives us a deeper, 
and wider and stronger and more enduring than whatever current circumstances we are in. Because all we see is not that there is and a last word about us, our struggle that has yet to be spoken. You see, true peace is not the absence of conflict or war. True peace is tranquility and harmony and wholeness and completeness emotionally and mentally and physically and relationally and spiritually. It is quite the multi-layer complexity when you think about it. And it can be overwhelming. Therefore, we choose to follow Christ, the paradoxical prince of peace. As Jesus declared in John 16, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have tribulation. But take courage, for I have overcome the world. Every day you and I carry around a bucket. It is the bucket of our lives. We can either choose to fill up or empty our lives, fill up or empty the lives of others. Jesus is inviting us to rethink what's in our bucket. Instead of a bucket filled with discord and worry and restlessness, Jesus is inviting us to fill our lives with peace that comes from God's bountiful love for each of us. As you carry your bucket this week, consider how you might be filled with peace. Look to the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus, which emboldens us to know God's love for us. And as you carry your bucket this week, consider how you might fill the buckets of others, of your neighbors and coworkers and strangers and people very different from you with the peace of Christ.